Hey, uh, Brad, you got a cold open this week? I was kind of hoping you maybe showed up with something. It's almost like cold opens are a non-renewable resource. And by <laughs> using an entire cube of them, <laughs> you both have no longer have any left. The well has run dry. I, I look, I got to go out. I got to replant some cold opens. So we have some, some fresh batch for next week. A crop, a crop of cold opens, maybe. After the podcast mines again, we're going to have to dig deeper this time. This does give me a business idea of like putting Ooh. open source cold opens like that are uh, oh, CC BYA <laughs> on we YouTube that anyone can use. We will license you some some interesting intros for your podcast. Look, you you if you are the uh, if you if you do a podcast, you you have run into this problem. One day the cold open well will run dry. You won't have anything new on Netflix to talk about. Should we just should we just make the audio network of podcasts? Just do a ton, like thousands and thousands of royalty free podcast clips that people can assemble into their Ooh. own podcast. <laughs> Wait, your own. Uh, a podcast network? What a novel concept. <laughs> Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I'm Brad. And today we're joined by a third chair, Kishore Hari, uh, who you may know from This Is Only a Test, and also science communication around the world and and movies and all sorts of other things. Hey, Kish, how you doing? Uh, excuse me, and from Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod? Oh, yes. And and our COVID, rep- our unpaid COVID representative uh, here at Brad and Will Made a Tech correspondent. Sorry. You, you may know me from such episodes as... The days are awesome and uh, <laughs> and scaring the crap out of Brad Shoemaker. Oh, gosh, uh, let's mm, it's been a long, it's been a long year. Well, so, you know, but so, you know what I am famous for now? I what? am now uh, Stakem blessed because the Stakem account and I had a positive interaction and no now way. it has deemed me as science communication worthy. And and that's are, the pinnacle of my scientific career. Brad, Brad is giving a look like he doesn't know about the Stakem account. Wait, do you not know about Stakems? I mean, I, I know of Stakems. I didn't know about Kishore's. Are you a Stakefluencer now? Yes. I'm and yes, I'm going to use that in a tweet uh, momentarily. <laughs> official official Stakem brand ambassador. Do, do, like the Stakem Twitter account at some point, like what, two years ago now, maybe Stakem was just like, you know what's bad? Fascism. And I was <laughs> like, huh. A frozen meat product agrees with me on my political views about fascism. Oh, so I, I forgot that I forgot that Stakems were innovators in the like, hey, this brand is actually human and, and real kind yeah. of category. <laughs> yeah. Forgot about that. Woke brand influencer. The, the, the personality is real. The meat, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think the meat's real, just chopped. Anyway, hey, you're welcome, Stakem. Um, how you doing, Kishore? How's how, like last time we had you on? This was kind of a bummer episode, and this time I feel like things are going a little bit better. I, I would say it was an appropriately bummer episode, given where we were, because I think I was on just about a year ago, just a little bit more than a year ago. So it was about the end of March last year, uh, and I don't think I was bummer enough for what was a, ahead of us here in the U.S. Uh, I'm feeling, you know, almost 180 degrees different now. Um, from where we were, there is a lot of optimism uh, and a and a lot of uh, sense that not only can we 
beat this back in um, in Western nations, but there's a pathway for for beating back the virus across the world, which honestly never felt possible uh, up until uh, the last couple months. So last to, to give some context, last year when we talked about this, we were a few weeks into quarantine and we were kind of like, is this going to be over? You know, at the end of March, or is this going to be like June? Maybe this is August? such a this is I don't know. such a weird trip down memory lane because I'm sure you guys feel the same way. The time has completely lost any meaning. Like I can't mm-hmm. remember what I was thinking when, or even really what year it is at the moment. But like, yeah, at that time, like I remember when we shipped out of the office in mid March last year. I was like leaving stuff on my desk because I was like, ah, we'll be back in a month, maybe six weeks. Like I don't need that right now. And then it I'll was keep like this donut. It'll still be months, good. Eight months later, they're not letting us into the building, you know. And it was just like, oh boy, this we really, really underestimated. Kishore did not like you. You were on top of things. You know, I went back uh, the other night and listened to the episode in in preparation for this. And of course, I'm only going to reference the things I got right. But uh, (laughs) I even I was wildly underestimating the nature of the pandemic. Like uh, Will and I exchanged an email after the episode where I threw out like this is actually what I'm scared of. And it and it's ending up being like five times less the magnitude of deaths that we've actually seen uh, in the yeah. U.S. alone. So uh, I didn't going back a year. I don't think I had a, a good handle. I knew we were in trouble uh, because there's just lots of things that you look for in a public health response that just weren't happening in a timely manner. But a lot of people were feeling that in the public health community. But it was intensely hard to turn that into a prediction of what we saw. And there were so many things that happened in the last year that um, evade uh, what you would sort of uh, commonly understand to happen. Uh, and one of those is actually the the rapid development of the vaccines. Even though we yeah. had laid the groundwork for that with uh, some of the work in Ebola, some of the previous work on uh, SARS and MERS, um, it, it's nearly impossible to predict when basic science work like that can be translated uh, into clinical reality. Uh, and to have the vaccines that have come out be so damn effective at preventing hospitalization and death uh, it, it exceeded my wildest expectations. Uh, and I, I think it's important to remember that, like the threshold here in the U.S. for vaccine uh, efficacy was 50 percent. Like that's what the mm-hmm. FDA said was going to be our threshold for potentially approving a vaccine. A lot of experts were like, oh, if I get a 60, 70 percent, that's going to be such a win because it'll be like a version one of the vaccine. And we're talking about efficacy rates like in 90%. Now that we have real world effectiveness, um, we're seeing those numbers um, maintain uh, that high level. Uh, so uh, it, it's astounding. Um, I haven't gotten my vaccine yet, um, but you know, I was talking to colleagues and friends that have worked in the industry, and they just talk about getting it and just and crying, just like openly weeping because of the monumental nature of what uh, has happened. That's like I went on Sunday. uh, So Brad and I have got both gotten vaccinated now, but or at least first doses. Um, And I went on Sunday to one of the mass vax sites, the one at City College, which I think is probably run by the state, but I'm not sure. Um, And when we checked in, I was like, hey, how many people do you do here today? And she's like, well, we did 5000 yesterday. And I was like, oh, my God. And, and it's small, like it's in the parking lot of a high school, right? It's not it's not a huge thing. There were like 20 lanes. I we got our shots. It took 34 minutes from the time we pulled in until the time 
uh, until the time we left. With that includes the fifteen minute waiting to make sure that you don't have any of the relatively uh, uncommon side effects. Um, we were sitting there. I I pulled into the parking space and I started crying. I was like, I can't believe that this is that this is. I didn't expect for this to happen for another six months or a year at the absolute earliest. And um, it's it's incredible. There was an article. Uh, in the New York Times that like described the process for writing these mRNA va- vaccines and they, they literally write them like code, which which we have like we'll talk about later, I guess. Um, but but the fact that they spun these up so quickly when when every every other similar disease has taken years and years and years of work to get to is is amazing. And and that they work is, you know, I guess that's that's good, too. Um, so how how. So you think we're doing we're do- like in the U.S. at least we're doing pretty well, it seems like. Yeah, I think in the U.K., the U.S., uh, Israel, the Seychelles is really kicking ass. If you really want to pick a country that's <laughs> that's doing it. Um, How many people pay- live in the Seychelles, Kishore? I don't know, but I saw it's- a number that said that uh, they have nearly 100 percent coverage. So, um, okay. uh, you know, in the U.K., uh- <laughs> I think. Uh, over 50 percent now of the uh, of the population eligible population has received a first dose. Um, You know, we're rapidly approaching that in the U.S. We're a little bit down from there uh, in the U.S. because we've gone on a let's just do the the complete dosage uh, first. Uh, The pace of vaccinations is here in the U.S. is about three plus million a day. Um, If they're able to keep that rate we would fully vaccinate all of the uh, eligible adults within like four months. Um, But we're really trying to get to a point where maybe like 75, 80% of the eligible adults are, um, are vaccinated. And that would take three months at the current rate. But, but we're about to hit an inflection point. um, I think based on the data that the supply is going to outstrip demand. We're already seeing this uh, in a number of States in the South. Um, Bloomberg has probably the most easily navigated vaccine tracker um, for the U S it actually has global numbers too, that are pretty good. Uh, And you can see um, state by state, how many uh, doses have been delivered to those states and how many of of those doses have been administered. Um, What you're really looking for, a state that's really doing this efficiently where there's good uptake is going to have a number of uh, above like 85%. States that are crushing it are in the 90%. Um, (laughs) You're never going to get to 100% for so many reasons. But if you're in a state that's like, uh, above 85%, you're in a crushing it state. If you're in a state that's about 80% or above, you're like, you're, it's going. So California, where we all live is, is hovering right about that 80% mark, uh, in Louisiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, it's in the high sixties. Um, and that's because we're seeing a number of people either decline or they're really struggling getting doses out to where people live. That's um, the, the just decline, because of rural population. Something I wanted to mention, like the kind of the, the dark side of the supply outstripping demand is the demand is suppressed in some situations where, you know, misinformation or conspiracy theory are rampant. Uh, and I was wondering if you have any thoughts on like. A, maybe what outreach could look like to try to get those numbers up more and, and maybe convince more people to good idea. And B, also just what the long-term effect might be of a significant chunk of the population. Maybe it's not as significant as it looks, but like, you know, some, some chunk of the public just never opts in if that is going to cause long-term issues. 
so typically like every when we talk about this uh people typically talk about the anti-vax population i think they're actually not as important an actor in this situation but estimates in the u.s of like people that we would categorize as anti-vax like people that are like dead set against getting vaccines is maybe three to four percent of the population okay so it's not that many people but in surveys um going back a number of months about covid vaccines um, there is a pretty strong set of people that have been robust saying that they would definitely not get it. And that's been around 15 percent uh, of the mm. of the population. So that so the question is, why is that higher and what are the reasons? Some percentage of those are what we would call those anti-vaxxers that they're just no from the get go based off of history. There's a number of people that uh, for various reasons just don't believe covid is a big deal. Um, um a lot of that has been associated to partisan ideology, um, but also there's some people in that group, um, from what I understand, that just live in settings where COVID hasn't really hit those communities in a significant way. So they just don't see it as a ever-present threat. And I think one of the ways to understand that is if you live in a rural community, if you live in a small community, if you're young, if you're healthy, you might be in a class where you're like, I, I'm just not worried about this disease for X, Y, uh, and Z reasons. Uh, so there's a class of people there. There's a class of people that have had a terrible experience with the medical system, um, whether it be racism in the medical system, lack of health care. They just have no reason to trust that this thing that's being given is a thing they want, especially when it's coming from a, a institution like the government, which they already have low trust in. So there's this amalgam of people. Uh, and uh, what we're seeing is that 15 percent isn't really changing a lot. Right now. So we shouldn't expect that 15% to go down to 5%. It's just not reality. And those people tend to be really, really hard to convince. What is a bigger proportion is what is uh, called the wait and see group, that they're not enthusiastic about getting vaccines. So like the three of us, we're basically like and the first time it was available, we're out there, we're weeping in the parking lot, you know, like we're we're the caricature of vaccine enthusiasts. But the um, there's a whole set of people that are like, yeah, I'll get it, but it has to be convenient. It has to um, kind of work with my schedule. I think a lot about workers that don't get paid time off to go get a vaccine uh, and they can't take time off from work because it's literally the difference between like food on the table um, yeah. or people across a digital divide. How can they even get an appointment? There's a lot of uh, of seniors that don't have uh, Internet access. Like there's a whole lot of people in that category that have access issues. And then there's people that are like, you know, maybe side effects will come up. I'm just going to wait like another extra month or two. Uh, yeah. And for those people, there is different in uh, like interventions that need to happen for access. It's literally, we have to make it low barrier. We have to bring the vaccines to them. If that means going door to door, that's setting up mobile clinics. If that's empowering members of their community to go talk to them um, and like give them rides, that's what we have to do. And there's a bunch of campaigns out there doing that uh, for those people that are like, wait and see, we just need a lot of engagement. Um, with them so that they get comfortable with the idea. And there has to be a lot of transparency about what's happening with the vaccine. Those efforts are ongoing. That's really going to be the challenge over the next couple of months is getting those numbers of that wait and see down as close as we can to zero. And and what number, so what's the, what's the breakdown do you feel like of 
the hopeless, never going to vax, the wait and see, the you know uh, institutional skepticism, and like how, like what, wh- where do we need to get the population for things to have a return to normalcy, and and what you know, how close are we going to be able to get? Do you think in the U.S. Uh, so the latest data I saw, the wait and see is down to about 17 percent just because we've been vaccinating so many people that were in that category. They've moved to already vaccinated. Um, uh, what you're really talking about is when can we get to herd immunity when this thing will die out? And uh, it's a tough question because uh, herd immunity is ba- is like essentially like a calculation across a population of when we think the virus just won't have anywhere to go to replicate. But in the real world, that's not really how it works. Like the virus is going to just look for any host it can. Um, and vaccinations won't be evenly spread in the city we live in, San Francisco. We think vaccination rates are going to be super, super high for lots of reasons. Um, so if we get a town that has 85, 90% vaccinations, which is eminently possible in San Francisco, the virus is going to be dead here. Like it's just going to have nowhere to go. And then there's going to be a town in Louisiana that's going to have 50% coverage. And you may like match them together nationally and you'd be like, oh, we've reached that 70% number, but you still have this localized uh, area that, um, uh, has uh, has a lot of vulnerability. So I think what we're moving to is not what we would call herd immunity, but a stage of this disease where there's enough immunity in the community to prevent breakouts in most areas, but we'll have localized breakouts where that where we haven't reached those vaccination levels and we'll have to surge in those areas to uh, to address it. Um, like the common parlance is we have to get between 70 and 80 percent of the uh, population vaccinated to get to a level where the virus is going to uh, like die, die out. out. Um, that is um, both not realistic for the reasons of uh, we have a lot of children in this country that are not eligible to be vaccinated. So there's a whole vector of uh, uh, of, of people out there um, that aren't qualified. And then we know there's just people not going to get it. Um, so when you combine those, like there's no way the math works that we'll get to that 75, 80% number in the country in the next couple of months. But what we will get to is because this is an incremental process is we'll see the virus come down. And I actually think the number that I'm looking for is less about, um, uh, the herd immunity target. Like I want to see the vaccination rates get as high as possible everywhere. What I'm looking for is new cases to decline to about 10,000 a day. Um, okay. Right now in the U.S., we're hover- we're at a plateaued stage around 70, 80,000. And for reference, that's where we were in July of last year, um, where we were absolutely panicked. Now, the difference is in July of last year, we had no treatment regimen. So we're like, we know a lot of people are going to die because of this. Right now, we see most of those cases in younger people that tend not to get hospitalized and die. And we have a potential treatment, uh, both in hospital and with the vaccines. So uh, I think that's the target that I think is important. That's what Dr. Fauci has been saying for a long time and a lot of other public health efforts. If we can get down to 10,000 cases a day, it's going to feel like a really, really, really bad flu season in the in the U.S. where um, people are getting sick. But it's going to be at a low enough level that we can get we can go about um, most of our daily activities without worries that it's going to uh, overwhelm our hospitals. Do you know, um, excuse me, off off the top of your head, just for some context here, and I know this is kind of apples and oranges, but um, 
what the long-term presence or occurrence has been of some of the previous outbreaks we've seen over the last 15, 20 years, you know, the previous SARS viruses like avian flu, that type of thing, like years out from there. And again, I don't know that they're directly comparable to the situation, but like, I'm curious, you know, six months, a year, two years from now, like, is it still circulating in the population? Do we ever get to that kind of zero point? Are we getting COVID or, or, boosters in, right. in in the fall every year? Like we get flu shots? Like, yeah, like what's the long-term projection for how much this lingers, I guess? Yeah, so the public health way of asking your question is like, is this virus going to be endemic? So uh, endemic means it's just omnipresent. Um, it's going to be a thing that happens every year. Uh, with SARS OG, I like calling viruses OG for some reason. But like with the first SARS... Is that scientific name or is that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's uh, IUPAC naming convention, okay. uh, but with SARS OG, it just died out. Um, and so it was gone. It, it it never became. Well, first of all, SARS never really became a pandemic um, and it never reached the levels that would make it endemic, but it just disappeared. Uh, H1N1 was really part of a, a seasonal structure already that existed. So we've seen waves of H1N1. So H1N1 still exists out there, um, but it, it comes and, and goes um, uh, in, in, a, in a seasonal nature that's very hard to predict. Um, so it is constantly circulating. Um, the projections are very difficult in this way because vaccinations and the speed of vaccinations actually matters here. Uh, because what we're doing is like we've essentially pushed the virus into a corner um, by doing this. And so two things happen. Like the virus is trying to go host to host and like doing everything it, it can uh, to survive. And we're by putting in a corner, we're putting it under this evolutionary pressure to adapt um, as quick as it can. And adaptations that are going to allow it to survive are likely going to replicate faster. So we're going to see mutations probably emerge that may be able to evade some of the, the vaccines that we generate unless we go super fast and, and outpace it, the evolutionary pressure on it. And so this is why it's important not to just vaccinate in the country you're in, but vaccinate everywhere as fast as you can, because then you eliminate the ability of the virus to evade um, your vaccines. And so it won't matter what the rate is in the U.S. What matters is the rate in the world. Um, and so likely um, because it is not possible to do the vaccinations worldwide at the rate we're going to need uh, that a lot of people are preparing for booster shots that are going to have reprogrammed uh, instructions uh, to uh, deal with the dominant circulating strain of the virus at that time. Uh, and so that's already in process based off the dominant strains that are existing right now. The good news is that the dominant strains that are circulating right now, whether you call them the UK variant, which is now sort of become the dominant strain here in the US. Um, That's or even, Yeah. Uh, or the South African one, uh, which is 1351. We're still seeing pretty high efficacy, at least in terms of hospitalizations and deaths um, with the current um, vaccines. So hopefully we'll never get to the point where we need a booster, but they're preparing as if we'll need one. It's just going to depend on the rate of vaccinations worldwide. And that is really, really hard to predict because it's about supply chain. It's about human behavior. It's about implementation in every single country. Are, are, are there are there proactive efforts for, for outreach and distribution in, you know, kind of the global south and, and less privileged countries? I mean, are, are there are there like institutions pushing for that or is that just sort of trickling down slowly? 
from, Brad, from your view? let's talk about IP and patents <laughs> on vaccines. Sure. Actually, like, oh, this is a massive issue. Here. It's um, our favorite. So if if you were just like thinking about this in a purely tech way and you're like, how do I get this thing, this piece of code um, that I've written out as fast as I can to everyone so they can make like a real product, you'd be like, uh, I would just open source it. Um, and I would give like every country the ability to do that. Well, we have patents and IP structures in the way. So the the companies that have made this really want to protect their investments. Um, and so they have maintained those rights. And this is a complicated thing that goes back to a lot of things um, uh, that have been developed over the last 20, 30 years. There's a really good New York Times Daily episode where they talk about um, Bill Gates addressing this problem through the Gates Foundation um, uh, going back 20 years. Um, and the solution that came up with was a something called COVAX, which is rather than eliminating IP and just open sourcing um, these vaccines so any country can manufacture them, what we'll do is we'll pool our doses and have them be sort of distributed evenly amongst countries in the global south. And uh, the U.S. last year under the Trump administration um, pulled out of that deal. Uh, and then Biden went back in and said, uh, here's like $4 billion into the fund so you can go out and distribute them everywhere. It, it's pretty clear that if we pulled the IP, um, every country would be able to spin up manufacturing um, and it would be faster. It's, but it's also not realistic under the current sort of um, uh, late stage capitalism world we live in. So uh, yeah. I think COVAX is our best bet right now. And um, working with countries to spin up manufacturing for distribution. Uh, it, I think this is an ongoing challenge. I think even though we've put in four to five billion dollars, it's not going to be nearly enough. We have to put in a ton of effort um, going well past the pandemic feels over here in the U.S. in order to get these um, vaccines out there because we won't be safe until the world is vaccinated. As a layperson, this seems like a situation where you you a penny spent up front is worth 20 spent later on does that do you think that's fair right, or like not this, so this, much? this is this seems like one of those things where it's like if you can't appeal to people's like sense of humanity and decency you can at least appeal to their sense of rational self-preservation because it's like hey it's good for you as well as them if you help them look, <laughs> but look though if there's selling a lot that more to variants people, if there's yeah. a lot more variants then they can sell a lot more vaccines well, brad yeah, you got to think about sure. that yeah. mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, actually, i do a, think the investment up front makes a difference uh, and you also have to look at what the perception is. So here in the U.S., we're saying, OK, we had stockpiled a bunch of AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and right now it's not approved in the U.S. And so one of the things we did is they're like, hey, Canada, Mexico, you can have our AstraZeneca. And like, think about what it feels like if you're in one of those countries where you're like, oh, so the U.S. is giving me the vaccine they don't want um, uh, to me while protecting their populace. Uh, yeah. this is what's traditionally called vaccine nationalism, where you hoard supply for your own population. Uh, and then when you do distribute, you distribute something that might be seen as inferior. Uh, and so there's a lot of countries where there hasn't been a dose of vaccine administered. Uh, and they're watching other countries, richer countries, 
uh, administer half of their population with a vaccine. This is a monumental challenge to overcome. So not only do you have to just do the work up front to get these doses administered from the public health standpoint, there's also like the inequity standpoint um, that really uh, hampers everything from global trade on down to relations in these countries that can really damage uh, uh, stability of the world long term. It's it's. I mean, honestly, when you put it that way, it's shocking to me that we aren't having like people screaming at each other in the UN and people amassing armies on borders and stuff like that. <laughs> the fact, dude, the vaccine wars is like the most dystopian cyberpunk concept I've ever heard. I mean, you say that, but if I'm one of the countries that has no vaccine and I border a country that has a shitload of vaccine, I'm like my like there's an economic there's an economic fallout to not being able to vaccinate your population that is going to impact countries levels of success sure but i mean the, the sad reality is the country that can afford the vaccine also probably can afford a much larger military so <laughs> the I mean, problem you cancels don't even itself have to, out you don't even have to compare these like wildly different structures if we compare the us to the eu the eu if we were there if we were podcasting from there we'd be like the the world is falling apart because of how far behind they are on vaccinations. In reality, they're about two months behind where the U.S. and the U.K. are in terms of their yeah. vaccination rates. But what that's resulted in is literally tens of thousands more people dead because they're going through another surge at a level that the U.S. and the U.K. aren't. Now, maybe that surge is still coming to us and, and we can't avoid it and it's a time situation, but their experience on the ground looks very different. So it's not even just comparing countries of vast different um, wealth status. It's it's ones that are considered oftentimes uh, common colleagues. Uh, so I, I, it's one of those things like two months makes a world difference here. So every dose of vaccine that we can help administer everywhere is going to, I think, lead to better stability. Reality is that's not how it's going to work. It's just not politically uh, solvent to, to basically send all of your doses overseas. But I think the commitment that most people are looking for is 5% of your doses um, get distributed elsewhere. There's a that's vaccine the, gap, basically. Yes, for sure. And, and one more quick question about the uh, IP issue. Is it jaded of me to assume that these vaccine designs, which are privately held, were developed partially with public money? No, that's not my. That's totally how that was done. Is that exactly what happened? Great. Yeah, okay. of course. Great. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the one thing that's complicating about that is it was used. Uh, it was developed by public money from multiple countries. So it's it's not just something that was developed uh, here in the U.S. Um, and there are some limitations on the product um, in terms of that public funding, in terms of how it's used. But there's still these IP uh, arrangements that limit that are limiting manufacturing elsewhere. Of course. So, so let's get to the real, you know, if you're sitting out at home and you haven't gotten vaccinated yet and you're looking at appointments for Johnson and Johnson and Moderna and Pfizer and, and you know, Bob Jones's old snake oil vaccine shop down the street, what, like, which is the good vaccine, Kishore? Which one uh, do I want? So I'm going to I'm going to tell the line. Uh, the it's, the, it, it's the first one available to you. Yes. Um, that's the okay. Is the best the one that's available to you is the best vaccine to get. Now, yeah, man, but, going but, beyond like, that, because everyone's heard that at this point. Yeah. Uh, uh, so the concerns about Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca right now are about a rare clotting issue. 
Um, we're recording this on a Wednesday here in the U.S. The CDC is convening an emergency meeting this afternoon uh, to address the pause uh, that's been instituted because of six blood clotting events in the U.S. Uh, in the U.K., out of uh, seven million doses, six point eight million like that, right? doses yeah. administered uh, in the UK, there was I think there was thirty two blood clotting incidents with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, the pause has been reported on pretty widely. Uh, to me, when I heard the pause and I heard them say say it, it was really about this is a very specific type of blood clot. Um, you might have heard it called CVST, um, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Uh, and what's weird about this clotting incident is that it, it doesn't involve a high platelet clout. So it's not this kind of typical coagulation. So when you get a blood clot and you end up in the hospital, they typically put you on a drug called heparin, uh, which is an anticoagulant that um, that kind of thins your blood and and kind of circumvents the blood clot, causing a stroke or, so, or something worse. Um, and heparin doesn't work in this case. It's actually the wrong course of treatment. And so what the pause is about primarily to me beyond the safety issue, beyond like the we got to review the data is like a shot to all the the doctors saying like, hey, if somebody comes in with a blood clot, ask them what vaccine they took. Make sure they didn't get Johnson Johnson. So before you put them on heparin, like you can actually make sure what the source of, of the blood clot is so you can treat it properly uh, Two, make sure that we're capturing all of the blood clotting events that might be associated to the vaccine properly in the system. We have something in the U.S. called uh, VAERS Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System uh, that captures all of these things. So they're really trying to see, do we have six or is it a lot more? Um, are we only capturing the super, super, um, you, you know, uh, severe cases of this or their minor issues of blood clots that are being underreported? Um, so they're really doing the pause to be like, OK, let's see where we're at, um, because the rarity of this as it stands, if it stands that it's only six cases is much rarer than um, than if you were on birth control or other drugs. They have a much higher instance. But I'm not saying that six is the number. So uh, I think it's natural in this inter- intervening period to be like, I'm not going to take the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, for virtually everyone, you shouldn't be able to get it right now. The CDC recommended yeah. putting a pause on it, and that means... It's, but it's up to the states to actually implement that. Uh, and I think virtually every state is uh, following the guidance. But I, I want to take a Johnson Johnson during this pause while they're sort of figuring it out if it was available to me. Um, what it means long term, I'm going to wait and see what they say. Like they paused for a reason um, out of extreme caution. And I think that's probably the right move long term. Uh, I'm not overreacting to it right now. There's not a ton of information. It's hard to do prognostication. Uh, We don't know why. We don't understand the science of this. But the one thing the AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson um, vaccine have together is they both use the same basic structure. They use an adenovirus to deliver the information on the spike protein. So is there something about that structure that's causing this weird platelet clotting issue? We don't know. Uh, And so in a weird we don't know situation, I'm just going to wait. And uh, there's no use predicting anything because the chance that you're right is very, very low. I know you. I'm sorry. 
right. I, I know. I know you said you came on here intending not to scare the daylights out of me, but as someone who did get the Johnson and Johnson about a week and a half ago, what would you say to a person like me? Uh, so, uh, so two things. Uh, one is there's a, a set of symptoms to keep an eye out for. It's like severe headaches, um, severe abdominal pain, um, and the thing is, like this kind of clot is eminently treatable. If okay. you end up in the hospital, like tell them that you took the Johnson Johnson vaccine okay. and there's okay. treatments for it and you will likely be fine. So far of the six, one person died and one person's in critical condition. Um, the likelihood that you're going to get sick from this is very low after about a two to three week period. After that, you're pretty much um, free and clear. And clear. Okay. So I don't it, think you should be scared. I think you should just yeah, be aware. Yeah. Right. It, it's interesting because there was a widely shared thread on Twitter last night from an internist or an ER admitting doctor who basically said, look, the, the good thing about this pause is that it means that every ER doctor in the country and all, most of your general practitioners now know to look for these five symptoms and to ask if you've had the Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca vaccine. And as a result, they'll they'll be able to treat this this complication that, that, that's that a, great a really small number of people like that's a great point because i came into this feeling like well i'm certainly no expert in a position to say this was an overreaction but like you did see this you saw the small number of cases that that are that are that have been indicated versus the total number of vaccinations and you thought like boy this is really potentially doing damage to the public information outreach efforts of scaring a public that is already somewhat skeptical of this thing into maybe avoiding it. But like when you, when you put it that way, that does sound like a, a worthy benefit to, to incur that potential damage. There's a lot of people that have come out and said like, this is going to increase rates of vaccine hesitancy. This is going to cause a lot of people not to get the vaccine. Like I understand why your thinking is along that way, but we don't have evidence of, of that at all. Um, we, I think there's no way of knowing um, what the response is going to be. Now, I think what's important is that the federal government takes some proactive strep steps uh, and really increase communication and transparency about what's happening, particularly with this vaccine, to hedge against that kind of stuff. But we don't know. I mean, so much about this entire response has been about just managing your own risk uh, as an individual and then managing the risk of the population uh, as done by our state and federal governments. And we have gotten that so out of whack where we try to treat things as a binary like should am i a yes or no to this um uh like if it doesn't work perfectly um uh do i get it or not and it's really like i i think about it this way this is a very crude analogy but um just walking around just like existing i have some risk of getting covid now, I take that risk way down by doing the kind of hermit lifestyle that I live and will live, um, <laughs> uh, where I basically I don't see any other humans. Um, when uh, I interact with anyone, it's basically outside. I wear a mask everywhere I go. That takes my risk down pretty far. Uh, almost like almost virtually to zero, to be honest. Um but then when I encounter people, my risk goes back up. The vaccines take that risk when you interact with people back down to where it was when you're wearing a mask and not seeing people. It doesn't take it all the way to zero, but it takes it so far down. Um, and it, what we're doing is sort of managing that intermittent risk of like between 
like almost nothing by not interacting with anyone and a little bit when we interact with some people. Uh, And so I'm going to keep using things that I know that work, like washing my hands, wearing a mask to keep my um, my personal risk relatively low in this period when we're trying to vaccinate as many people as possible. Uh, and I'm going to get a vaccine because I know it's like one of the biggest things I can do to keep my risk low over a long period of time. Uh, and so that's how I think about it. The J&J vaccine fits into that um, into that system of managing risk. I have like a, a very, very, very minor risk as it currently stands of how, developing a blood clot. But uh, to me, getting COVID is worse um, uh, than that yeah. risk as it stands now. Now the data might change, but that's how I think about it is like managing my risk. Now as like the state and federal governments, they look at it across a population. It's a different sort of calculus. They're going to unpause this vaccine, I would I would bet, um, based off of uh, the limited data we have, unless a stream of new data comes in saying that the blood clots is a lot more prevalent than we think. Um, I think they'll unpause this. And I think you might be surprised at how many people prefer the, the single dose. Uh, and but more importantly, that Johnson Johnson vaccine is critical to getting supply out to to um, uh, developing nations. Uh, because it doesn't have the infrastructure requirements. Right. Yeah, the room It just has to be normal easier. refrigeration. Yeah, like I, I got mine in, like we'll describe like something out of some kind of like a, like a pandemic movie or something, <laughs> parking lot full of cars and stuff. But I went to a Walgreens and there was one person in front of me and it was basically just like getting a flu shot, you know, like it was mm-hmm. extremely mu- mundane for how profound it is to receive this thing. There was, I read a book about 15 years ago uh, that was written. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was a, it was a person. The gist was the way our monkey brains work. We worry about the edge case things, right? Like we worry about getting hit by an asteroid or, you know, having, you know, even in the United States, having a being shot like in a, in a, in a mass shooting incident is a pretty low percentage when in reality, if we really wanted to avoid the things that were dangerous, we would always use the handrail when we go down the stairs and we would be really careful getting out of the shower and like never get in an automobile. Yeah. Because those are like the three most dangerous things that anybody does. And we do them all every day. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's the managing the personal and community safety stuff is challenging in this because, because of the way our, our, brains are fundamentally designed like monkey brains. We, we worry about the, the lion coming up to eat us in the tree, not the, you know, falling out of the tree and getting a concussion. Anyway, right. so like talking about irrational fears seems like the perfect time to bring up general efficacy rates, because that's the thing. Like I am that person that Will was describing earlier uh, prior to the, the, the news of this week with the blood clots and stuff. I was the guy a week and a half or two weeks ago now staring at the only appointment I could find and saying and seeing that it was the Johnson and Johnson and like wringing my hands for a day or two going like, should I just go ahead and get it? Should I, that number, that one number sure is bigger than this other number. Maybe I should wait, which I did not. I ended up taking your advice and getting the one I could get. But, um, do you want to comment on that? Like I've, I've done what I think is the reading about, you know, these were, 
these were studied under very different conditions. Like the the numbers that came out the other end are not in any way directly comparable. Like you would have needed to study them all side by side in identical conditions for those numbers to be relevant against each other. Like, is that is that the basic gist? Is there much more to say than yep, that? You, you got it. There isn't much more to say than that. Um, I would say the one thing I would layer on top is the one thing that all three vaccines that are approved in the U.S. are really good at doing is preventing hospitalization and death. They're near 100 percent in um, uh, across the board. Now, there are things about contracting COVID with long COVID that we really don't understand. Um, there's been some kind of scary studies that have come out in recent um, recent weeks about long term effects of people that have COVID. But even the people that have gotten COVID that have received um, these vaccines seem to, in the early days, be reporting a much milder form of the disease. Um, so to me, that's what's important. Like the number one thing I'm scared about with COVID is risk of hospitalization and death. Um, and all these vaccines work at reducing that risk um, uh, close to zero or as close to zero as you can get. Um, the next level is like, I just don't want COVID. Um, and uh, all three of these seem to be doing pretty well uh, at, at preventing uh, people from getting and transmitting COVID. And then oh. when you go even a step below that, like how severe COVID would it be if I get them? They seem to be not terribly severe across the board. We're going to learn a lot more in the real world um, as these are administered. You have to remember, like these have only been administered for about two and a half months at this point. So we just don't have enough data to say. Um, but everything that we see now, both here and in the EU, says like you should just get any of them. They're the same. Uh, this, effectively, this, this might I, this probably I'm guessing it's going to be hard for you to give a qualitative answer to this question. But when you say a person who is vaccinated gets it and it's not kind of a, a very severe case, does not very severe mean like, oh, it's like a pretty major flu or it's like a common cold or that I'm sure that's all over the place, right? It's all over the place. Um, yeah, OK, they it means uh, not hospitalized, right? Yeah, well, of course. Yeah, of course. Definitely yeah, not hospitalized. Saying, yeah. But yeah, yeah. um. Dave, uh, first of all, the the number of people that have gotten immunized and gotten the uh, gotten COVID is very low. It's not zero. It's not going to be zero just because like that's not, you know, how vaccines aren't 100 percent effective. That's not just not how they work. Uh, but what we're seeing is is cases from like I have a very uh, um, achy body, mild fever, cough. There's a lot of people that are asymptomatic um that emerge from it so uh it's a range like so so okay this is this is my next question you know a lot of people live with people who either can't get vaccinated because they have health conditions that prevent them from getting vaccinated but more likely they're just under the age of 16 um and you know schools are going back you know the kids while the common wisdom is the kids haven't been particularly affected by COVID or they, they get minor cases. It's definitely not the universal case. And, and we're looking at, I, I mean, I think, I think we're looking at 12 to 16s being able to be vaccinated shortly, but not under 12s. So, you know, what happens when my wife and I are vaccinated and, you know, our unvaccinated daughter, like, can we infect our unvaccinated daughter if we go out in the world and, and come back with the asymptomatic COVID? Um, like how likely is that? Is it something we should be concerned about? Is it, should we continue staying bubbled like we have been? Um, you know, what's the, what's the kind of, I, I know, I know if we're vaccinated, we can go hang out maskless with a bunch of our vaccinated friends, 
but um, I, I'm I'm much more concerned about my daughter at this point than I am than about me. Yeah, so I am somebody with an under twelve um, at home. Uh, there aren't super super clear answers here, so I just want to acknowledge like the data is changing pretty constantly. Like, and if we do take away one thing from this episode, is like it is a changing landscape, and uh, your advice and action should change with that landscape of information as it comes in. So what we have seen is that. Yes, children can get infected at COVID. It's at a much lower rate than adults do. But if you live in an area where community transmission is high, um, kids can get COVID. Now, typically what we see is the adults are the ones that tend to infect them rather than kid to kid. Uh, There's been... Um, Outbreak is too strong of a word, but there's been a set of cases in Minnesota in the uh, recent weeks that are associated to a school. And uh, we know that it, it seems like the adults uh, transmitted to the kids in the school. So this is a situation where it's like, let's talk about risk again. So us do, getting vaccinated is the first step as the adults, right? Because it lowers the risk for the kid overall, because now we're much less likely to transmit under any circumstances to the kid. But then your question of like, well, if I go out in the world, I can still get COVID and asymptomatically transmit to the kid. Uh, So that's why I'm going to still take some precautions out in the world, um, like wearing a mask and doing some like somewhat distant activities. So like to me, I'm not going to go sit in a restaurant right now indoors and eat um, uh, even when I'm vaccinated. But I might be open to doing the outdoor eating at a at a restaurant um, when I'm vaccinated and, you know, I'm two weeks afterwards um, uh, uh, under the right circumstances and the food is good. You know, I think that's actually underrated. Like, you know, like yeah, I went through in and out the other day and I through the drive through. I looked at the patio. I was like, you know, yeah, I'm not, I, I would maybe do that when when it's windy. Why not? <laughs> yeah, it, for sure. And it, like it has to be food that stands up to being able to eat outside. There's not a lot of food that. There, there's certain restaurants uh, that I think like having noodles outside or pho outside feels weird to me for some yeah, reason. It's, it's it's funny walking around here and seeing you know everybody's erected their you know cart uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know wooden shelters Cartlets. outside the restaurant on yeah right. Yeah. Um, it's funny seeing specific types of restaurants and their custom adaptations. Like you'll see like a hot pot place where like you know they had to saw like a big hole in the middle of the table where they could drop the pot into for <laughs> everybody that comes through, and it's uh it's it's a pretty bespoke situation for a lot of businesses. But back to your question, Will, like I'm going to keep wearing stuff that doesn't bother me, like wearing a mask, doing some um, distance activities and and maybe I'll be more aggressive about doing like picnics in the park with friends once the uh, once we're fully vaccinated and stuff, because that will keep the risk to my kid low. And the other thing I'm going to monitor is what community transmission looks like and alter my behavior based on that. So right now where we live, community transmission is really low. Like in San Francisco, there's about 30 new cases a day, um, which is relatively low. Half the population has has half the adult population has gotten a vaccine. So we know it's going to be safe here. But if those cases start going up, I'll probably like pull back a little bit. So like the thing to say is there's no way to keep your kid perfectly safe, especially um, if they're going uh, to school. But you just got to take steps in your own life to keep that risk relatively low and manage that risk for your kid. Um, But as it stands, you getting vaccinated 
is a massive step to keeping them safe. Like that is a, a probably the biggest thing that you you've done. So the the risk of you as an adult going to uh, going to, uh, you know, uh, outside and interacting with somebody and bringing back COVID and infecting your kid is relatively low, even if you didn't take those precautions. And by you taking those precautions, you're even lowering the risk. Can I can I ask you some common human activities and you give me a yes or no on them for you <laughs> okay. personally? All right. All right. Lightning round. I'm very yeah, curious. Round. Uh, Brad, uh, can we and as a sidebar rate what Will thinks are common human activities? <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, go into the grocery store versus ordering groceries online. Uh, I think it's fine. I, I personally have no issues with going to the uh, grocery store, um, especially when you're vaccinated. Uh, like, are okay. we talking post vaccine? Yeah, post-vaccine. Like you, yeah. you're post-vaccine. Your kid isn't. You're going to the grocery store. Like if you need to, if you need, if you run out of eggs, you swing by the grocery store, grab some eggs. No problem. Uh, no problem. Still wearing a mask. Still going to try to be relatively quick in there. So okay. So no, we, like two-hour Trader Joe's run. Um, we already okay, hit we'll, no indoor dining, but we did uh, hit outdoor dining, and probably outdoor dining is a yes if the food is appropriate. It's a, for it's a yes for me personally. These are all personal choices, but yeah, yeah it's a course. yes for me. Yeah. Of course. Um, okay. What about uh, going to a movie? Uh, so I am not going to a movie indoors until we hit probably a, a case rate that's in like the, you know, when we hit that case rate in the country of like 10,000 cases a day, or we hit cases in San Francisco that are like nearing zero, I think I'd yeah. be much more open to going see a movie indoors. Um, I think the thing about movies indoors that scares me uh, just a little bit is like, it's not like a situation where I can like wear a mask while doing it because like people are eating popcorn and like, yeah. you know, that's how I want to enjoy a movie. And if I'm not comfortable eating indoors, like going to a movie indoors is the same thing. What about uh, using a public restroom? Uh, so, wow, that's a mm. tough one. Um, I, so I think using public restrooms is, is fine. I usually wear a mask, wash my hands um, and generally be quick about it. Um, yeah. And this is not grounded in Evans, but I'm just going to say it. I'm all about like peeing in pu public restrooms, but I'm not a. Um, a, a number two guy in public restaurants okay. right now. Uh, and that's all because of like amount of time. Like I just want to yeah. minimize the time in public restrooms. So okay. I think public restrooms is, is fine. Um, but I'm also like a nervous pooper. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we don't look. We don't need to. Get, we don't need to get into your personal yeah, I mean, here. Well, uh, well, these are personal to, questions. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I uh, also started to bring up some of some of the some of the gnarlier ways that the virus can be expunged from the body that people have talked about. You know, like it shows up in sewage and stuff like that. I don't know if there's more. Risk I mean, yeah, of bathrooms it. are covered yeah. in fecal matter, Brad. We in know the that. air. Yeah, but yeah. fecal matter doesn't put you in the hospital necessarily. Yeah, there right. is some evidence of fecal oral transmission from like like plumes of air that come off in bathrooms and bathrooms aren't always really well ventilated. And, and that's kind of the issue. Uh, what we're seeing in sewage is obviously just viral fragments and it's just a way of tracking oh, that, oh, over a population. For, okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, well, okay. What about uh, getting your teeth cleaned? 
Oh, so dentist, um, dentist, I'm pretty comfortable. So the place I'm most uncomfortable with the dentist office is the waiting room. Um, because yeah. the waiting room is like a place that is typically not super well ventilated and you could be there for a long period of time with people you don't know. Uh, but the dentists themselves, um, you know, have developed a lot of procedures, especially here in the Bay Area, going back to the uh, AIDS epidemic around protective procedures around um, transmission. So from what I've heard, I haven't gone to the dentist. This is like high on my list of things that I want to do post-vaccination is uh, uh, they'll typically wear like face face shields, masks underneath that. Um, and, uh, I've heard a number of dentists are, are doing a lot more procedures around ventilation, um, in those areas and limiting the number of people that come in contact with you. So they're treating it like any medical professional would. Uh, so from that standpoint, I think it's safe. And so the thing I'm nervous about is a waiting room. Um, but I think there's easy ways to mitigate that. Gosh, I, I first of all, I'm starting I'm feeling positively reckless here because like we never stopped going to the grocery store. I've been to the dentist, I think, three times since Good the pandemic God. started, including one major dental procedure. Although, like to my dentist's credit, like I have never seen another patient in that dental office the all three times that I went, including the 90 minutes I was in there for that procedure. Like they are v- really spacing those appointments out. They're like face shields all over the place. Like it's, it's pretty intense, but uh, my dentist is in like a 120 year old building downtown. So you have to climb six flights of stairs okay, and like, this is, I, there's no way in hell I'm going in there. I got to find this a new is, dentist. Okay. Yeah. This is a tiny it, office open to the street with two chairs in it. It's not a it, no. grocery stores have always been fine. I just think the, um, idea of spending a long time in a grocery store is where is where I would get nervous and like post vaccine. I'm not terribly nervous. What what about the eye doctor, Kishore? Uh, no problem. So they get right so, up on the they looking at your right on ah, your. You I, know, I, did right that, I did that. I, I did that last week. I'm, yeah. uh, so wow. just as an update to listeners, we've uh, we've learned that Will can't see. He's worried ah, no. about his teeth. Um, he needs to go to the bathroom and, and he's starving. Uh, he's also starving. And he's starving. And, and I yes. really I look. I got to get into a theater for Fast Nine, Kishore. That's that's where I'm at. <laughs> uh, yes. No problem Prior- going to the eye doctor. Time, yes, that's the 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 hierarchy of needs. Seeing Fast Nine in a theater is right there at yes. the top. It's number th- like four on the list after food and and uh, and dentistry. Um, I, I okay. So I think let's see. We've gone down most of the question. My my daughter had a question for you. She said, "When are things going to be back to normal, Kishore?" <laughs> You know, you know, an easy question. Yeah. I'm sorry for springing this on you also. So there's I have two answers to this question. Like, uh, I I think I was on your your stream not too long ago, Will. Um, and uh, I was I was talking to you and and some of your PUBG pals. And I said, I think I would see a movie in the theater this summer. Um, and I, I think I'm sticking to that. And I think that's like a sign of things returning to normal. Like things are going to be open. People might be wearing masks. Uh, people might be more cautious, but we're going to like walk down the street and feel like activity looks like it was in 2019. Um, I think we're going to get there um, in three, three to six months, somewhere in there. Um, I would say we're going to see activity feel like that. I think we are going to live in a new normal where there's going to be localized outbreaks, whether it be, you know, this summer with a potential surge in some areas. We're already seeing that kind of in Michigan and some states in the Northeast. Um, We're going to see localized outbreaks probably going into the into the fall and winter if we don't get vaccination coverage where it needs to be. 
And that's just going to be a reality where there's just going to be periods where we're like, see cases rising and we like pull back a little bit. So there will be like a little push and pull, but it won't be nearly as um, severe uh, as what we saw going in the past. And the last thing I'll say is like normal wasn't great for everybody. Normal was bad for a whole host of people. And so I hope we don't go back to normal. I really hope that we focus on getting back to a new normal, Um, especially here in the U.S. The weight of this pandemic and deaths um, uh, really fell on the shoulders of communities of color. So we can't just say, let's go back to normal for those communities that bore an undue burden. when it came to the impact of this virus. So I hope normal is redefined to something that is much more um, thoughtful about health disparities and health equity um, in that context. I'm going to paraphrase in TLDR something you said, (laughs) but like, I mean, it seems like your strategy on what's safe and what isn't is to kind of look at local community spread for where you live and base your decisions based on how, those numbers are looking. Are you getting those from like county health boards? Are you getting from the state? Are you getting from the CDC? Where where do you get your data on that stuff? So the CDC tracker is excellent. Um, it is the the uh, I think it's the gold standard right now of case level data. You can look on uh, county uh, here in San Francisco. Our county has been you know reporting data on a dashboard uh, you know since the first week of the uh, pandemic, and it's. It's a good source of data. So I look at that. The New York Times also has a really good uh, case count um, visualization for where you live. I mean, I, I think those are the sources I would I would go to. Uh, whatever is the most usable for you is honestly the, the choice. Bob Watcher, if you're in San Francisco on Twitter, is real good. Um, th- do we have to keep wiping groceries when they come in? No. Okay. <laughs> I did, Thank I did you. that once in the first like... <laughs> I think a year ago I was telling you guys like stop that (laughs) yeah I thought I thought pretty early on they got out there and said surface transmission was not really a concern look now it's just a now it's just it's like taking your shoes off when you come in the house I don't want outside filth in the house it took so long So the one caution I would give people is people I've heard people discuss, like, when can I take my mask off as a sign of normal? I think that's a bad marker for it um, because uh, because masks obviously help you. It lowers your your risk out in the world. I also see them as important social cues um, because like you two are vaccinated. I'm not. Um, you could probably be pretty safe going out into the world um, without a mask on, um, especially if you're you're outside and not spending indoors and, you know, licking people's faces and that kind of stuff. And oh, but if you are out there not wearing a mask and you're like, hey, I'm vaccinated, like flaunting it in my face, like it creates these like, I think, weird social dynamics. And so I'm keeping my mask on partially until we all get to the place that uh, that we feel comfortable uh, taking off our mask because we've reduced the threat uh, to everyone. Um, Look, and and so and it really doesn't affect my life when I wear a mask outside. Like, I'm fine with it. That's the thing is, like, if we can avoid getting the flu every year by wearing a mask and getting colds all the time, I am 100 percent down to wear like I'm I don't anticipate ever going to a trade show again without a mask on. I do. I do wonder. I have wondered if this actually does have a normalizing effect on just the general wearing of masks. I mean, I you know, I think like even in cultures where it is very normal, like it's still a pretty sort of situational thing. Right. Like, I don't I don't know that I don't know. I don't know. That there's that much like preemptive mask wearing 
going on generally, right? Isn't it a lot more of kind of I don't feel well, so I'm going to wear a mask or like I'm going to protect the people around me or there is a surge of something going on. Maybe now's the time, but yeah, but if you're you're going to area. Yeah, Yeah. if you're going to Comic-Con, though, which is a high risk area unto itself. Just sure. like when you literally name diseases after comic conventions, <laughs> like Dude, yeah, Pax, uh, Pax, you know, Pax I, East flu is the Pax flu is the worst flu I have ever had in my yeah, life. Like I, I could see uh, wearing it under those circumstances if it doesn't bother you. Um, and, you know, maybe I might. Uh, like I think it ma- it depends on the circumstances when you go to that uh, convention. I'm not going to wear it as rigorously as I wear now, where it's like every time I go outside, I'm wearing one. Right. But sure, I'm I'm going to normalize utilizing a mask in my life um, when it makes sense, especially uh, during you know cold and flu season. Because you know what I've learned, I don't like getting the flu. Um, it's great not having the flu. It's great not getting sick um, for a lot of reasons. And so um, and, and again, I'm one of those people where a mask just doesn't bother me. It just feels yeah. like a thing. I do. do you want to okay. do you, you want to talk about convention health initiatives? Let me tell you about my campaign against the handshake. <laughs> I thought Good that's news, done. Brad. That's done. Oops. <laughs> I bought a car yesterday without shaking hands. It's the first time that's ever Dude, happened. I've, I've, I've been, I, I've like, I mean, we've been to a lot of PAXs to be clear. And again, I've gotten sick from multiple ones, but like, you know, we were, we were trialing, you know, the, the elbow bump. I think even the fist bump is a little too much hand the contact elbow for bump me. We did fit, like 12 years ago, 11 yeah, we years doing, ago. We were, we were doing the, yeah. the elbow bump a decade ago. You know, I just, I feel like, you know, as, as far as the foot shake, yeah, you know, you gotta have good balance for that though skin to skin contact that can spread pathogens around maybe the handshake has outlived its usefulness i don't I, know you tell me i think the fist bump is fine like first of all it's like a vector of disease transmission like with all of the stuff that we're emerging from this uh like just wash your hands like you can shake people's hands just wash your hands afterwards well sure I, I do that religiously i but i don't you know you just some people you know you again you go back to public you bathroom behavior you can observe that, that some people are not so fastidious about true. it and i think the handshake's dead i'm fine with the fist bump i'm fine with whatever convention emerge from this let the innovation spring forth on what our <laughs> can, can we do, get be. the space ball salute where it's like you know um the the uh uh so what are good sources for news and stuff where should you go cdc obviously honestly like the uh what's important is finding a news outlet that that you trust for various reasons like are they speaking you to you in a language that makes sense to you like that's really important um I should back up and say, okay, there are certain sources that are actively trying to sow disinformation and um, uh, uh, sow chaos and and essentially generally get you scared or outraged. I tend to avoid those outlets that drive emotional reactions to me because they're less about informing me and more about, you know, uh, uh, capitalizing on my uh on my emotional state um 
But moving past that, once you get into these areas, I think it's important that the that the outlet you read contextualizes the information in a way that you understand. So for me, I like I tend to read a lot of papers. I really like the Atlantic, but I'm like your traditional like uh, coastal liberal elite. Like I, of course, I like yeah. the Atlantic, um, but uh, you know, for some people, that's going to be like the the New York Times. Um, some people just use Twitter and and really follow their list. Uh, I really like Bob Wachter, who you mentioned. He's chief of the division of medicine at UCSF. He has a lot of like locally pertinent information in a really accessible way. Um, I follow a lot of epidemiologists on Twitter. But at the end of the day, I think for a lot of people, go local. Is what I have okay. to say. Like, go to your local paper. Go to a local outlet. Follow a local reporter. Um, and because I think you're going to find more contextually important information from them with less of the the world is falling uh, type uh, rhetoric in there uh, than from other outlets. Um, some of the best uh, recommendations I've gotten is from um, is, is from people that live in communities where like sports writers and entertainment writers had to get pushed onto a COVID beat. And so all they did was this kind of like report the facts without a lot of like prognostication on top of that. Uh, mm -hmm. And they said that it's been really great because it's been informative. It kind of put it the onus on them to manage their risk. Um, and they never really got too hyped um, uh, around uh, what was going on. I, I have a couple more uh, hypotheticals for you. Get on an airplane. Yeah, if I'm mm. vaccinated, sure. Mm. <laughs> uh, okay. So bus, muni, BART, all that's fine then too, presumably. Yeah, I mean, um, it's definitely higher risk. Um, and the reason it's higher risk is you're just in touch with more people. So it's not zero risk. So I'm not taking flights for without reason, but a flight to see my parents. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about um, a cruise? Would you go on a cruise with your parents? I wouldn't go on a cruise before. Yeah. Let's, okay. <laughs> Fair. let's, 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 let's okay. be reasonable here, man. Okay. Uh, I have one last question for me before we wrap up here uh, related to uh, or as a follow up to Will's question about where to get your information. I'm sitting here looking at this CDC tracker that, that you linked, which is, is it appears to be great. Like it's very dense with information. Uh, the phrase variance of concern <laughs> is becoming rapidly familiar. Is that something I should be keeping my eye on or is that just a way to drive yourself crazy and you should just ignore it until something is bad enough that you hear about it normally? I generally think you should ignore it. The fact that we're okay. using terms like variants as common parlance is, uh, is not great to begin with. Like what we've found this year is a lot of scientific discussion like between scientists, between public health experts is just in public forums right now um, for good or bad. There's no sort of value judgment. And like we've picked up that language and started using it. So variant of concern is really like a public health phrase um, that is really just like, hey, we spotted this strain that has shown these, you know, somewhat in, like interesting effects on transmissibility or infection and like we got to keep track of it but we have nothing solid necessarily to say about it um, and then there's variant of interest too that's also like a thing i'm you shouldn't worry about that okay, what just like what's important is the vaccines being effective against those things so the news will break through 
if you st- if there is a variant or a strain that is evading um, the vaccines, trust me, yeah. it will get to you. As, as and that's the thing to the be Johnson concerned about. Johnson blood clotting thing broke through. Sure. It's not an issue. Um, are, are, are we testing enough in the U.S. now to know what's actually going on? Uh, we I do believe like we've kept testing rates high enough um, to have a good understanding of community spread. Okay. More testing, especially rapid testing, can be helpful, especially in contexts where we're like going back to school, um, going back into offices. Um, I think those are going to be useful figures. So I, I want to see a ramp up of like the at home and those rapid tests um, that can help people make decisions in, in, uh, on the fly. What we don't do enough of is uh, the genomic epidemiology like the the genomic surveillance of um of potential new strains we need to get more of that up that's more of an issue for state and federal governments to increase the capacity to do that okay uh is there anything we forgot to ask you about that you think is important to share i i think what's important to share is like i feel optimistic like you know like and it's okay to feel optimistic about the future uh i it I had I've had a hard year, not nearly as hard as so many out there. I've I've been I think everybody's had a hard year. Like even even if you were relatively untouched, it's been an awful year. Yeah. And um, I am allowing myself based off of the evidence, but also just based off of, um, you know, things that we're seeing out in the world to be celebratory in this moment. So every time I see somebody post a picture of them getting vaccinated, I, I feel joyous because it's like one step closer um, uh, to us really moving past this. And that's great. And I think people should have the license to feel good about things. Uh, I, it feels almost weird to say that as somebody that like works in science communication, but I think it's important. Um, Cause I don't think we scratch the surface on like some of the mental health outcomes from this pandemic. And so it's Im- important to start um, shifting that mindset. Um, if that's where you're at. I, I think, I mean, I think that is the one talking to parents and friends. I think that is the one thing that nobody is really prepared for now is how, how, hard this is going to be on like how how challenging it is like it's weird going out in the world and seeing 50 people in one place now uh after a year of this and and there's mental health implications for all of that stuff so uh anyway thank you so much kishore for coming yeah. by um it's always fascinating to to get your expertise we'll let you go and wrap up the our our, our other business but is there anything you'd, you'd like to plug uh i'm on the tested podcast this is only a test um uh, pretty much every week. So you can come there and hear me opine about science, but mostly uh, go into conspiracy theories about the latest Marvel show. Um, and uh, I'm also on a Winnipeg Jets hockey podcast that literally dozens of people listen to. If you want to hear me really get animated about things that are of little or no consequence. What's the name of the podcast and where can oh, people find it, you on the internet? It's, it's called the Jet Centric Podcast. And I'm at Science Quiche on the Twitter and uh, stake them bless. <laughs> well, all right. With that, with that said, thank you, Kishore. Thank you so much for coming by. And, and next time we'll have to have you on for, to talk about something that's really super duper fun instead of just like, you know, like we're gradually, we're gradually improving. So, and as always, thanks to all of our fabulous patrons who support the tech pod every single month. 
um, uh, you know, whether you're in the two dollar tier and just hanging on the Discord and chatting. We've had we've had we've had a lot of people come in this month, Brad. Yeah, it's been nice. An influx, you might call it. Yeah. Uh, and as we'd, we'd hinted at, we're going to be changing the tiers before too, too long. So if you want to lock in at that $2 rate for the Discord or the $5 rate for the patron-only episode, uh, now is the time. Uh, you, can, you can find out more at techpod.com slash. I'm going to do that part over. Again, so <laughs> oh, that come up. on. You got it. You can find out more at techpod.content. Nope, that's not it either. <laughs> now you definitely can't take this out. You can find out more at patreon.com slash techpod. That's patreon.com slash techpod. Uh, we added a new channel the other day. Is that the exercise channel? Uh, I think it is. I think I called it. Hang Let's on. What, I, I saw it this morning. I thought it was a pretty good name. Don't tell me. Get swole or something, something. Get swole or something, something. Yes, okay. exactly. Yes. Um, but yeah, so like this morning there was a conversation in general about cars. We're not, we're trying to like not add too, too many more channels. Really got a lot kind of, now. It's, I mean, but, it's, but they're it's, active. So I don't, yeah. I kind of don't feel bad about having them. Um, it's, it's a, it's a lovely place. I love coming in and hanging out on the mornings when I have a moment free and can dip in and see what people are chatting about. Dude, um, I was sitting there at 6am this morning talking to somebody about retro writing. Wait, what's ret- oh like reflashing somewhere on a retro? No, it's a chemical bath. What that you put your your old yellowed video game consoles in? Oh, but they just re-yellow immediately, don't ah, they? Is it immediate though? Like, well, yeah, like a yes, few months. yes, it, yes, it can recur, but I, it's not. I don't think it's instant. We did a bromide. Uh, one of the early huge hits on tested was a bromide story that I think Wes Fenlon wrote. I can't remember. It might have been Matt Braga or Jason or somebody else. I can't remember, but. Um, yeah, so anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for telling your friends. And as always, a super special thank you goes to our executive producer level patrons, the Bunny Fiend, Jacob Chapel, and James Kamek. Thank you all so much. We appreciate it. Yes, very much so. And I guess that'll do it for us this week. We will be yeah. back uh, next Sunday with more Tech Pod. Brad, do you have any closing wisdom for the folks at home? Oh my God. Um, eat your Wheaties? Wait, they didn't pay for a spot. Yeah, no. Uh, you, you know, eat, eating fiber is healthy. Eat, yes, eat your, eat your nondescript uh, generic fiber cereal of choice. Perfect. See you all next week. Bye.